Hello, my name is Anne-Marie Cannon, and I'm the host of Armchair Historians. What's your favorite history? Each episode begins with this one question. Our guests come from all walks of life. YouTube celebrities, comedians, historians, even neighbors from the small mountain community that I live in. They're people who love history and get really excited about a particular time, place, or person from our distant or not-so-distant past. The jumping-off point is the place where they became curious, then entered the rabbit hole into discovery. Fueled by an unrelenting need to know more, we look at history through the filter of other people's eyes. Armchair Historians is a Belgian Rabbit production. Stay up to date with us through Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Wherever you listen to your podcast, that is where you'll find us. Armchair Historians is an independent, commercial-free podcast. If you'd like to support the show and keep it ad-free, you can buy us a cup of coffee through Ko-fi, or you can become a patron through Patreon. Links to both in the episode notes. Hello, fellow armchair historians. In this episode, I talked to Kevin Kuharik about his recently published book, A Clutter of Patchwork Squares, a Chronicle of Atlanta's Oakland Cemetery. For those of you who have been following us from the beginning, you may remember that my first episode was a three-part series in which Mr. Kuharik shared the history of famous hotelier and French chef of the Rockies, Louis Dupuis. A clutter of patchwork squares, which is rising quickly up the Amazon chart for 20th century American history, is a groundbreaking historical account and reference. Mr. Kuharik has literally spent years researching and writing about one of the most popular and largest cemeteries in Atlanta, Georgia. We are talking footnotes and everything. Kevin Kuharik, welcome, and thank you for being here today. Thanks, Anne-Marie Cannon. <laughs> I love that you say my last name uh, with my first name. Anyways, we're just going to get right off into the races, and I'm going to ask you, what's your favorite history that we're going to be talking about today? We're going to talk about a municipal cemetery in the southeast located in the city of Atlanta called Oakland. Oakland Cemetery. Why this history? I started volunteering at Oakland back in 1989. And even though people knew some things about the site, a a proper history had never been written. A seminal work had never been written about the site. Many people had talked about it, that it needed to happen at some point, and nobody did it. And so at some point, I decided that I would try. And so in 2000, I started pulling together what I knew about the site, um, including some of the people buried there, some of the manufacturers of the monuments and other ornaments, and started to create a a chronicle of the place. So I've listened to some of uh, the book. I've read some of the book. I've downloaded the book. What is the name of the book? A Clutter of Patchwork Squares, A Chronicle of Atlanta's Oakland Cemetery. Now, what was your approach in writing this book? What angle did you want uh, to disseminate information from? I found that most cemetery books focus on the famous people buried there. It's more of a collection of biographies, if you will, and really not about the site. But I consider myself a sites person. I'm a historic preservationist professionally. So I was more interested in why the site was the way it is. How did it get built? Why was it built that way? Why does it look the way it does? Why is it located where it is? And so I approached it differently. So I minimize biographical information and only use it if it helps explain the story behind a monument or a section or some sort of landscape feature at the site. So that is a distinct difference between my book and other cemetery books. Well, and I know one of the things that you take on is some of the racial uh, issues. And I think you approach that part of it, whereas other works probably don't look at the whole uh, material holistically and the different parts of it. 
So can you talk a little bit about that? Talk about the African-American history in that cemetery and, you know, maybe highlight some of the interesting points about that? Well, I was very lucky to have a a long and successful career in Atlanta, which is really the, the cradle of civil rights. And it made a huge impression on me, just living in that area, working in that area. And then the site in particular, Oakland, where I worked for 21 years in many different capacities, I was aware of racial tension, religious tension, and uh, socioeconomic tension. So from the outside, a casual visitor would think that a cemetery would be the last place where you would encounter conflict. But I found that Oakland was and is full of conflict, a lot of it racially based. Uh, It might surprise you that the site was segregated until the 1970s. And so in my lifetime, it was segregated and it was desegregated with the passage of something called the Oakland Cemetery Bill, which allowed for the city of Atlanta to reclaim unused burial space within Oakland. And there was a list of criteria, and it was it would include things like there hadn't been a burial on the lot for 75 or more years. There was no known contact, either a descendant or an authorized agent. And if no one came forward during this process, which took about a year of review in the courts, then the ownership would revert back to the city of Atlanta and the city could then auction off in a silent bid process these burial spaces. And this would be done on the courthouse steps. And it had no eye to race, religion, or economic status. You would just submit a bid in a sealed envelope, and the highest bid won. And that's what ended segregation at Oakland Cemetery. It became a model for other uh, municipalities that run uh, city cemeteries. Now, who owns a cemetery? The city of Atlanta. And so its expenses are paid for through taxes. And so it's a sort of a hybrid cemetery. It's a municipal cemetery, but within it, there are different burial sections. And within those burial sections, there is privately owned property. So the city, in order to raise money to establish the cemetery, bought six acres of land from a farmer, Alfred Wooding. It was likely a tobacco farm. His wife, Harriet, was already buried on the land. And so it was in a good location outside the city limits. It was on high, dry ground, but still accessible uh, to the population. So the city of Atlanta bought it. In 1850, they opened it as City Cemetery, and later it was named Oakland, after all the oak trees planted there and in the area. But it's um, in order to raise money to put in roadways and other improvements, the city surveyed the six acres, divided it into public areas and private areas, and sold burial lots, and then that revenue helped to do things like install walkways and driveways and roadways. So then people paid for their lots, their plots. What do they call them? Plots, right? It's a lot and then a space. And now... But not everybody could afford to do that. that. And so this this is a service of municipalities, they also bury the indigent and, at times, strangers. Travelers going through Atlanta who may have died from disease or were accidentally killed and would be buried at the city's expense. So that is a function of municipalities to this day is to bury the indigent. But at Oakland, it was the indigent and strangers. City still generate revenue from private owners? No. Okay. The cemetery grounds are finite. In fact, for 
the style of cemetery that it became, it's it's it falls into a category of the rural garden cemetery movement, which is based on an English design. And the first one was Mount Auburn Cemetery here in the United States, and that's in Boston. But Oakland, again, is a hybrid. Part of it is more like a churchyard. Another part of it is municipal, done on a grid. And then other parts are very winding roads that go around landscape features like hills and valleys. So the the cemetery is, is finite when it comes to its real estate. It's 48 acres, which is small for the style of cemetery it is. And so the land was divided and assigned and by the late 19th century sold out. So there's been no significant revenue since the late 19th century. So what that means is the burden of upkeep, maintenance and improvements is on taxpayers within the city of Atlanta. So they're not there aren't any available spaces or there are occasionally only if there are two ways to get into Oakland and that still can happen. In fact, the most recent famous burial at Oakland was the singer Kenny oh, yeah, Rogers. That's right. He was just buried there this year. And so it is an active cemetery, even though it's sold out. So the question is, how does that happen? In the case of Kenny Rogers, it was a private sale. There was a family that inherited space at Oakland, and there was a private transaction between that family and Kenny Rogers' family or estate. So that's how that came to pass. But still, when a burial space hits that 75-year mark, the city of Atlanta can instigate a process through the Oakland Cemetery Bill and reclaim that space. So there is still space there, but I will tell you that the cemetery is overburied. It has, within 48 acres, 30,000 monuments and 100,000 burials. Wow. That the, the average burial per acre is 1,000 people. So, <laughs> right, you're doing the math. So if it's 48 acres... It should be full at 48,000 people. It has 100,000 burials, and it's still active. Wow. So why did Kenny Rogers' uh, estate pick Oakland? I don't know the family, and I don't know who runs the estate. His burial happened after my departure from Oakland. I left Oakland in 2010. So I really, I don't know any specifics. I can speculate. I know he was living in metropolitan Atlanta. He was living in Sandy Springs when he died. And I do know that Oakland has a mystique. It has a cachet. There are other famous people buried there. And even though it is an active cemetery serving its community still, it is also a historical site and an attraction and people visit it. It's a place that has not been forgotten. And so it has, again, just like in the early days, great access to this to downtown Atlanta. So I would say that it would be easy for his fan base to find him at Oakland Cemetery. The other famous burials, Bobby Jones, known as the world's greatest golfer, he won the Grand Slam of golf. And also the author of Gone with the Wind, Margaret Mitchell, along with dozens of Atlanta mayors, luminaries, and criminals, <laughs> and the nameless. Everybody's there. And that's what I really like about municipal cemeteries. I have to say, of, of all the different types of cemeteries there are, I like municipal the best because it involves all citizens, no matter what they're economic level, their beliefs, their achievements, their sins, everybody's there. It's the great equalizer. So what is, tell us one of the stories about the African-American section. And I know you you talk about a lot of different uh, events and circumstances, but could you pick one and just share it with my audience? 
there, there are a couple of, of stories that really stick with me. There's one where an African-American man, and this is going, going to be late 19th century, an African-American man who did not have the means to pay the city of Atlanta for the opening and closing of a grave. And that's another way that the city would, and still does, create revenue. There, there's a cost for digging the grave, closing the grave. And so, of course, in the 19th century, African-Americans did not have the opportunities to amass wealth. Not all of them. Some did in Atlanta, but many did not. And so the expense of a burial fee would be something that would be an obstacle. So this man came into Oakland at night and he had a deceased baby with him. It was not his baby. It was a neighbor's, if I remember the story correctly. And he knew that he might encounter the night watchman. And of course, the night watchman position of authority, and also a white man. And so what the African-American man did was he put the deceased baby in a basket, covered it with a cloth, snuck into the cemetery, and lo and behold, encountered the night watchman who asked what was in the basket. And to try to throw him off, he said it was a roast beef and that he was just cutting through the cemetery. And so this really indicates to me some of the struggles economically, racially, that have happened at Oakland, uh, and why there needs to be an indigent section. Um, Another story that I have about the African-American grounds was how that section was preyed upon in the 1870s by body snatchers or resurrection men is what they were called. But Emory University, very fine university in Atlanta, had a medical school and they needed cadavers. And so they would hire people or even send students to places like Oakland, including Oakland. And because of the lack of a voice Mm -hmm. in the African-American community. There was a lack of protection, a lack of concern, and they would often be preyed upon. And there was a grave that was opened and uh, um, a, a body stolen. Eventually, laws changed, which allowed medical schools to legally and more easily access cadavers, and that's what ended grave robbing. But grave robbing did happen at Oakland. Where did you hear that story about the gentleman with the um, baby in the basket? Well, my, my book is a history, and so it's based on newspaper accounts and books There are some oral histories in there, but I do try to limit that because I want to stick Mm -hmm. to the facts. I tried to write the book in a scholarly way, and it does contain footnotes. So I do name Mm -hmm. my sources, and that way uh, people understand when things happened, what the time period was like, the context, Mm -hmm. and maybe where they can find more information regarding those subjects. There's a lot of information in this book. It ended up being 500 pages. And I don't know if that's a help or a hindrance when it comes to promoting Well, I the think book. the type of book that it is, it's it's a help because it's a, it's a reference. It is a reference book. I, I imagine people, you know, maybe somebody will buy the book specifically for a particular history. I don't know. I just, I think it's... It's a history book. It's scholarly. It has footnotes. And you did, how long did it take you to write the book? I started it in 2000. And of course, I had been researching prior to beginning to write it. So I had amassed 
a working knowledge of the site. I had articles and clippings already in my possession. And so the way I break it down is it was researched for 21 years. The 21 years I was involved with the site written for 10. So I started writing it in 2000 and stopped writing it in 2010 when I left the cemetery and uh, moved out of state to take a different position. And then I put it away for the last 11 years and just got to the point in my life where I felt it was time to release it. And so I released it uh, in a digital form. It's available on Amazon. And I was pleased and surprised to find out that uh, presently it is included in a list of 100 new titles on Amazon dealing with 20th century history. That's exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's a lot of work that you put into the book. There's no way to put a value on my time or on the content of the book. And what you said a moment ago about it being a resource, that was really the intent. So I appreciate you picking up on that. It is not a historical fiction. You might find pleasure reading this book. There are some really beautiful stories in it. There's a lot of tension in it. There's a lot of uncomfortable moments in the book. It was really to sort of help set the record straight. There were many misconceptions about how the site evolved or how it was used or who used it and why. And so I hope to straighten out the truth, present it in a factual way, and then if a question comes up in the future that might deal with the restoration of a monument or the restoration of a landscape or a section or even the introduction of something new, like a monument for an unmarked person, I'm hoping that this book will help guide those decisions so that people can get it right. When you said that you want to help to, with regard to future decisions, to help people to get it right, can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So in one of the burial sections called Jew Flat, there were walkways brick walkways through the section, so on sort of a grid, north-south-east-west grid. And because of the demand for burial space, the sexton for the congregation that was being buried in that section, the only way to introduce or create more burial spaces was to remove some of the walkways and bury people in the former walkways. And so that came to pass. And, And again, that goes back to... When you have a property, it is finite. It has boundaries, and it is what it is, and it will fill up. And so that was a creative way for that congregation to answer the demand for burial space in their section. And I revealed that to some tour guides volunteer tour guides at the cemetery, and they felt that was incorrect. And so I wanted to demonstrate to them through things like footnotes what exactly happened because I went to the Bremen Museum, which is a a Jewish museum and archives in Atlanta. I went there and was able to access records, and that helped to get the information, the facts, showing that the walkways were methodically, systematically, and purposefully removed in order to create burial space. Now, it wasn't just to correct that story with these individuals who felt that wasn't the case. I also was looking at it from a practical standpoint about burial need in the future for Oakland. And so, to me, if that was a historic practice within this historic site, but also active living site today, perhaps it should be considered for the future, the removal of 
walkways, driveways, and roadways in order to create more burial space. And if you could look back at a historic precedent, then perhaps that would make that possible. And so that that's sort uh, of a, the, the two reasons why I wanted to just put that misconception to rest. And that's just one of, of many in the site. What I like about the book is that you do present these compelling narratives, like about the gentleman who had the basket with the baby in it. They're, they're compelling stories. Like you said, they're interesting. And yet they're based on fact. They're based on, you know, it's a retelling of a story that appeared somewhere. And I think that's what makes this book so important and fascinating. I worked very hard to make the book inclusive because of the nature of municipal cemeteries representing all aspects of the citizens of Atlanta. And so I tried to, in some ways, dig a little harder when it came to dealing with the unknowns. There are many, many unknown people buried at Oakland. And uh, sometimes they're given a name in the records just to fill in that line. Sometimes it's just a physical description of that person and they're not given a name. So there are many nameless. There are people buried in the site under the name Stranger, and their monument says Stranger. There's one young man, Andy from South Carolina. There's another person, worker at Kimball House. There's a little kid, fed well child. There's a flower corner. There's an orange king. And there are numerous George Washingtons. And so this is what the sexton or sextons decided to do in order to fill out that paperwork. Either describe the person's physical characteristics or where they worked, where they were found, what they did for a living. Mm -hmm or just sometimes a humorous name because they had nothing to work with. So Fedwell child would be a child that might have been plump? Yes, I believe so. Oh, wow. Right. It's heartbreaking, really. But another reason, just to backtrack just a little bit about misunderstandings of the site that could impact it negatively. And remember, it's it's not just an active cemetery and a historic site, but it's also a an archaeological site. And prior to the cemetery being there, it was native land and Amerindians occupied that land. So there are many, many layers of history there. But at some point in the early 20th century, the belief that the potter's field where the indigent are buried, there became a belief that that area was not ever used. And the reason that misconception happened was typical of a potter's field the indigent, their families didn't have money to commemorate with memorials, anything lasting like a marble upright monument or a brick mausoleum. They couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. over the years, overgrowth and clearing, overgrowth and clearing, erasing the outlines of the graves, just through erosion and neglect, people started to think that that, acreage was unoccupied and could be plotted and sold. And so there was an excavation conducted by Georgia State University, and they came in and determined that the section was completely full. And so... Wow. 
this is why putting on record with sources is so important because it might be common knowledge today that Potter's Field is full, but will that perception or understanding be the same 20, 30, 50, 70 years from now? But if it's in a document like this manuscript of mine, perhaps that will help protect not only that section, but the people buried there who should remain undisturbed. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. It would be impossible to tell the history of Oakland without discussing race. I laughingly have told friends and confidants I'll know that the book is truly successful when I get my first death threat. And I say that because I, I do not shy away from the discussion of race. And there is no way to honestly write a history about Oakland and many things in Atlanta without discussing race. And so I name names. There have been some horrible things that have happened out there when it comes to discrimination. Uh, I know that the Ku Klux Klan used to meet at Oakland. I have a photo of it from the 1930s. And it's really, it was a way to establish a foothold on that property and also intimidate others. And so not only do I have photographic proof, but there are period accounts out of newspapers. I do name names uh, and it's just facts and it's reporting the facts that were reported. And so mm -hmm. it's just history. I thought of myself as a conduit for the story of the site. Although there is some artistry in it when it comes to how you balance things, but I did try to balance things. I do use the N word one time in the book, but it is from a quote, a historical quote. And I didn't yeah. want to let that person off the hook. Okay. And so I yep. quote it word for word, letter for letter, and let it exist as it was intended by this person. Mm -hmm. I also use the word Jew, which some people believe to be a slur, but it turns out that it's not. The word has been weaponized by people who are anti-Semitic. But historically, sections in Oakland named Jew Hill and Jew Flat, I decided to retain those historical names and talk about mm -hmm. the Jews of Atlanta. And it's not derogatory. It's, it's factual. And Jew is a noun and Jewish is an adjective. And so at in some situations, some sentence structures, some discussions, Jewish just didn't even fit, wasn't accurate. And I prided myself mm -hmm. on truth telling in this. Yeah. And some of it is very uplifting and other things are completely heartbreaking. And so I, Try not to interpret those things, but just present them as facts and let the reader take from it what they will. Why don't you share one of those uplifting stories? Let's kind of end the discussion of the book on one of those stories. A couple that are popping into my mind, and I'll just go with those. There are some representations like busts and statues that represent the dearly departed. And they're elevated to iconic status. These people were so loved that they were 
represented as represented in stone. And I think that is, is quite beautiful. There are wonderful symbols sprinkled throughout the cemetery, things like carved roses, of course, rose means love, an upright torch, which means immortality. There are excerpts of poems and, and uh, you know, quotes by Tennyson. And so I find all of those things very empowering culturally. And this goes back to ancestor worship a little bit, that these people are being elevated to really a status of permanence once their likeness is represented in bronze or in stone or stained glass even. And so just that commitment and that love and that sacrifice to commemorate these people, I think is really astounding. I also, you know, I bring the the story up to the early 21st century. I really end the story around the time of the death of former Mayor Maynard Jackson. Maynard Jackson signed into law in 1976 that Oakland would be the city of Atlanta's official bicentennial project. And I really credit him for seeing the value of that site as flawed as it is with all of its inherent mm-hmm. racism. Mm-hmm. I, he was able to see beyond that and see the value as a whole and made it the official bicentennial project. And I think that's why it continues to be repaired and improved to this day. That awareness, that momentum. I think he is not credited enough and sometimes not at all with that official act. But uh, truly, he's the one who brought the place the recognition it needed, the awareness it needed to begin saving the site. And he ended up being buried there. In fact, I was involved with Mm. his burial. I was in a new role at the cemetery with more responsibility than I had ever had. And unfortunately, uh, Maynard died unexpectedly um, from a heart attack. And so very quickly, we worked to clean up the grounds and prepare his grave with virtually no notice. I think we had it was either 48 or 72 hours wow. to prepare for this event, which was world news. We had helicopters flying overhead. There were guests at the funeral that included Jesse Jackson and Bill Clinton, bomb sniffing uh-huh. dogs, clearing the grounds. It was quite something. Wow. Yeah. And that's sort of where I, where I end the book. And I ended it there because of an occurrence that happened shortly thereafter. And that was the Atlanta tornado of 2008. I don't go as far as that in the book because I feel that that is a separate subject that should be addressed in its own book. The repair and recovery of the site after a natural disaster. So that's why I end it with Maynard Jackson. Okay. That makes sense. Where do we see this history in pop culture? Oh, well, I'll tell you. Oakland is such a photogenic and picturesque spot. It's often in demand for films and videos. And so it does have a place in pop culture. When I was there, I I saw... I saw Burt Reynolds film there. He filmed there a couple of times. He filmed there in the 70s, uh, Sharky's Machine. It didn't make the final cut of the movie, but he did film there. And then he came back in the early 2000s to do a movie called Broken Bridges. I know Disney has has done some work there. 
I know uh, the Indigo Girls did an album cover there. And as I mentioned earlier in the interview, Kenny Rogers just got buried there. And of course, Margaret Mitchell, although that's yeah. 20th century history. Now we're into 21st century history. There are still things that happen there. And I think we'll continue to. And I just think that the allure of the mysterious will never go away. It is an unknowable sight. I think that my book gives some structure and understanding, but the place is full of secrets. And that's why I was there for so long is because it is unknowable. It always kept my interest. There was always something mm-hmm. new to know and questions being raised. So where can we find you? Where can we find the book? What are you doing now? What's your next project? So you can access <laughs> some behind the scenes stories and tidbits and trivia on a Facebook page named after the book. So it's called a clutter of patchwork squares. And that is just a reference to all of the burial lots scattered throughout the 48 acres of Oakland. I also have some recordings of some excerpts on SoundCloud. So you can find that either through my name, Kevin Kuharik, or the title, A Clutter of Patchwork Squares. You can purchase the book on Amazon. I kept the price low so that researchers and institutions that might want to add it to their collection could afford it. So it's $10 right now on Amazon. You can view it on Kindle or other devices. And my next project is going to be a another historical work, but it's going to be a historical novel. And I'm going to be more creative this time. <laughs> I'm going to take artistic oh, license yay. this time. And I'm hoping to write about Louis Dupuy and the Hotel de Paris. And that is the site that I'm presently affiliated with. Who is Louis Dupuy? He was the best cook in the Colorado Territory and known as the mysterious Frenchman. He had a very checkered past that comes out after he dies. And we are lucky enough to have received in present day the world that he created in the form of a hotel, a first-class French restaurant and high-end lodge that sits in Georgetown, Colorado, and it's virtually intact. It serves as a museum today. And so people can come through and see where history happened, and it's virtually intact. 90% of the original furnishings mm-hmm. are in place, and there's some incredible stories. But instead of doing a scholarly work like I did with the Oakland story, I decided to do a historical fiction, a novel, which gives me some flexibility to test some theories. Yeah. So back to his nickname, The Mysterious Frenchman. Again, we'll never know everything. But I have some theories about why things are the way they are. And so I want to test those theories in a story, in a narrative told from a female point of view. And uh, the story is going to start in 1959 and then bounce back and forth in time. It's going to tell the story of um, the Burkholder family who ran the hotel in the 20th century, and then about Louis Dupuy, the founder of the hotel in the 19th century. I'm waiting with bated breath. (laughs) I do want to remind my listeners that my first two interviews, my first two episodes were about Louis Dupuy. I was interviewing you as the executive director of the Hotel de Paris Museum. So uh, if you haven't done so already, listeners, I recommend you go back. Fascinating history uh, about Louis Dupuis. So just wanted to put that in there. And what it, what do you want my listeners to be left with? What is the one thing you want my listeners to know about this history that you talked about today? Well, I'll tell you something I want them to know about themselves, if I could start with that. 
Okay. I really feel that most everyone can be a writer. And the difference between a writer and a non-writer is discipline. I meet a lot of people. They have a lot of interesting stories. They don't see themselves as writers. And Mm -hmm. the stories don't get recorded. And so I feel like I'm a great example of somebody who leaned on discipline in order to create a work that I felt needed to exist in the world. So I just encourage people, if they have a story, whether it's a personal story or they know something about a place or a person, to record it, to, to write it down in some way, shape, or form, and, and save, save that history that can be so easily lost to time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it. <laughs> that reminds me of when you were telling me about the woman that you ran into when you were oh. doing research for this book. Oh, what did she say to you? Yeah. To, yeah. I don't, I don't want I, to screw up I, the story. I really wish, <laughs> I really wish I would have gotten her name and her contact information and kept in contact with her over the years. So I was in the archives of the Bremen Museum in Atlanta. And it's a basement archives. Nice and bright, though. Nothing scary and dusty about it. It was really lovely and very unpopulated. And so there was an archivist running the division or section and two patrons, me and a young woman. And we were both very deep in thought, very deep in our projects, pulling materials, taking notes. And she approached me and she ended up telling me that she was a student at Spelman College, which is one of the historical black colleges and universities. And she asked me what I was working on. And I told her about Oakland and I asked about her project and it was a class project and she was just fulfilling her requirements. And just out of nowhere, she made an observation that has stuck with me and gotten me really through to the end and the end being releasing the book to the public, which has come to pass. And she said, and this was unprompted. Do you know why you deserve to write this book? Her words. And I said, no, why? And she looked around the room. And again, it was just the two of us. And she said, because you're here. And I have reflected back on that story countless times. I have told it countless times. Mm -hmm. And maybe she'll see it. Maybe maybe she'll see it or hear it with this podcast. And no, that was her. But I'll tell you, she gave me strength. She gave me uh, something to refer back on that was so positive. I've leaned on it many, many times. So I think I have too. Ever since you've told me that, you've told me you told me that a long time ago. And you know, when I think about certain projects that I'm thinking about pursuing ones that I'm working on, ones ones that are like your book that I wrote years ago that I haven't put out into the universe yet. It that comment that she made to you has helped me. That's fantastic. I hope I hope she knows that. I, I you know, and it just goes to show you one one kind word. And maybe mm-hmm. she doesn't even remember saying it. Who knows? I hope she does. I, I, I'd love to thank her for it because it's made a huge difference. And, you know, sadly, I've been told the opposite about this project. I, I was told yeah. I didn't deserve to write it. I was told I was not worthy of writing it. I was told I shouldn't write it. But I felt that the project was bigger than that. And if not me, yeah. whom? Exactly. And so I did it. It's done. 
it's out there. And I hope yeah. that it makes some positive impacts, not only for the site and its future, but I hope it, I hope it enhances people's understanding and their enjoyment of the site, their appreciation of the site, because it yeah. is splendid right. to say the least. Right. It sounds like it. I'd like to go there someday. I really enjoyed talking to you today, Kevin. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the opportunity, Anne-Marie. There you have it. A clutter of patchwork squares. To find out more about Kevin Kuharik in the book, be sure to check out our episode notes. Thanks for joining us. Have a great week.